This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to the Mom Room Podcast. My name is Renee Rena, and I am definitely the mom friend you have always wanted. Welcome to the Tuesday episode. You are in for a treat because I am speaking with a very impressive human being. It's so funny because I always research guests before they come on the show, and the first thing I watched of Anna's was her TED Talk. And almost instantly, I was like, yes, I love her message and what she is about, what she speaks out about. So I'm very excited that Anna is on the podcast today. She is an incredible speaker, which I probably don't have to tell you that. She has a TED Talk. And I mean, they don't just let anybody have a TED Talk. You know what I mean? Like, you have to be able to talk. So... You are in for a treat. Spoiler alert, her book will be the book club pick for the month of May, so you can look forward to that. I just received mine in the mail today, and I'm very excited. So who is Anna Malaika Tubbs? She is a New York Times bestselling author, advocate, and educator. Anna holds a bachelor's degree in medical anthropology from Stanford University, a master's in multidisciplinary gender studies, and a PhD in sociology from the University of Cambridge. Her focus academically is gender and race issues in the U.S., especially the pervasive erasure of Black women. Oh, and she is also a mother to two young children. So we talk a lot about her experience transitioning into motherhood, her birth experiences. We talk about the maternal health crisis in the U.S. Also, the policies like expensive childcare and not having parental leave. We get into all the good topics about motherhood. And then at the end, we get into her book and why it was important for her to write about the mothers of Martin Luther King, James. Baldwin and Malcolm X. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode and welcome Anna Malaika Tubbs to the Mom Room Podcast. Okay, so today I'm speaking with Anna and she told me that it's Anna and it's not Anna. So it's just like the Frozen Princess. So I'm speaking with Anna Malaika Tubbs. And yeah, so to start, I thought you could just tell us about yourself, your family, and then your transition into motherhood. Because I know you have two young kids and one is a fairly new baby. So can you tell us about that? 
Yeah, well, good morning. I'm so excited to be here and be in conversation. Thanks for inviting me. And yeah, so in terms of my family, I, well, I'll start with my kind of first family. <laughs> I'm the youngest of three. I had incredible parents. My mom passed away recently, actually. So everything I oh, do, sorry. my work is in honor of her. I appreciate that so much, but it's a gift because I speak about mothers all the time and honoring motherhood. And so it's really allows me to feel close to her always. Um, Mm -hmm. And then my family now is my husband and our two babies. So we have a two-year-old and he's like, what, 27 months, two-year-old and three months. (laughs) I guess you stop counting the months after two, I hear. So he's two years old. And then my daughter is only five months, five months old. I'm curious, because you do so much work on motherhood and mothers, was that something you were always interested in? Or was that something that came kind of after you started thinking about starting your own family? So yeah, long before actually, but before I became a mom, I was really interested in honoring mothers. So my mom was a lawyer and she advocated for women's rights, both in the U.S. as well as abroad. And she would say everywhere that we lived. So I had this incredible privilege of traveling from place to place growing up as a result of my mom's work. And so I lived in places like Dubai, Estonia, Sweden, Mexico, Azerbaijan, came back to the States when I was a teenager, lived in Laramie, Wyoming, Indiana. So this is just all context to say that I lived in a lot of different places. And in each place, my mom said, you need to pay attention to how mothers are being treated because she believed that everything came back to this treatment of women more generally and mothers very specifically, this kind of beginning of life and those that were in charge of guiding our lives, but who were never given credit for doing this incredible work. So she believed that that was an indicator for how that country would do and community would do, society would do, whatever group. And so I always had this at the back of my mind and all of my work in undergrad and and getting my master's. And then when I started my PhD and I knew I wanted my dissertation to be my very first book, I wanted to do something around exposing hidden figures. This was another part of my inspiration, but the motherhood piece was to honor my mom as well as everything she taught me about the erasure of mothers and the contributions of mothers. So Before I became a mom, I was really interested in showcasing this role and the power and the importance of the role of motherhood. And then as I'm writing my book and doing my dissertation, doing the research on these three incredible women, I was expecting my son, my firstborn. I didn't know he was a boy. We left the sex a surprise. I was expecting my first child. And that transition for me was epic in so many ways because on one hand I was well aware of the black maternal health crisis. I'm a black feminist scholar. It's what I study. It's the work that I do. And so as much as I was really happy that I was expecting, I was also really scared. I knew the dangers. I knew the biases that I would be met with as a black woman. And I then also realized that I was studying three mothers in history who were teaching me about my agency, about my power, about the need to make decisions knowing that those biases were there and to not just kind of put those aside and say, don't be afraid, but instead say, what am I going to do with that fear? And so, for instance, yeah, I wanted to work with doulas and I wanted to have a midwife with my my second baby and have women of color around me as much as possible to feel my safest and to feel my strongest as I became a mom. So it was this whole kind of 
lineage, not only my mom, who is a white woman, so it was a bit different from my kind of black maternal understanding of what I was going to be facing, but still with her influence and her power and example, then that being kind of added onto by the women I was studying and then learning about motherhood through the doulas that I worked with, as well as my midwife. It's this ongoing transition. You know, I don't think it's like this one moment where it's like, oh, okay, and now I'm mom and I'm a different person. (laughs) It's instead so many layers and steps to this beautiful and very magical process. I was reading how you felt as though when you were pregnant, and I think every mom feels this way. When you're pregnant, it's like, oh, oh, and everyone is, you know, like staring at you and wanting to help you. And you're kind of like the topic of conversation and you're the focus whenever you walk into a room and people are asking about your pregnancy. But then shortly after you have the baby, you kind of get pushed aside and you talked about that, saying that you kind of felt like not disregarded, but almost like forgotten after you became the mom. Can you speak a little bit about that? And also because like you mentioned, you do a lot of work around the erasure of women, especially black women. And so can you kind of explain what you mean by that, but then also how you felt after becoming a mom and, you know, did you kind of feel pushed aside? The piece that I wrote about this was for Time magazine, and I was kind of shocked that we didn't have more out there about this experience. And so part of my transition into motherhood has also been this kind of realization that so much of what I study, then feeling it personally is this completely kind of surprising experience. So similar to something else I said earlier that my mom also had mentioned that For her, especially in the U.S., she felt very much pushed aside once she became a mother. She had my sister and I in the U.S., and she had my brother in Sweden. And so she often said that in Sweden, she felt very empowered. She felt like her voice was still being heard, that she was still going to be supported, that it wasn't some kind of quick switch into now you're kind of a second-class citizen, like you've given us a child and you're going to move aside kind of thing. And so even though I was warned about that, it still really shocked me when I experienced it for myself. So I'll just take you back to the moment where I give birth to my son. And I, like you said, everyone had been fawning over me during my pregnancy. And wow, Anna, you know, you're going to have this baby and how are you feeling and when are you due and strangers walking up to you telling how you how you're glowing, all of these things. But as soon as I gave birth to him, It felt like all of our attention, everybody needed to just pay attention to him. And I needed, for instance, to go and take a shower. I didn't need to, but I wanted to. I felt like I just wanted to go and take a shower. This epic moment has happened, but also a very painful one, a very kind of indescribable, like there's nothing you can compare to it. It's a little confusing. You're trying to nurse and so much is happening. There's so many people around you, especially in a hospital Um, My home birth was, I think, a very different experience, but my hospital experience was also wonderful. But I then tried to go to take a shower, and I say I'm going to, 
no one seems to care. They're sort of like, yeah, go. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, I guess, you know, so I start walking. I had no idea how much I was going to bleed. I had no idea what postpartum felt like, especially in the immediacy of giving birth. And I really shouldn't have been alone in this moment. That actually can be really dangerous for a mother. But no one paid attention to me. So I'm sitting there trying to balance, trying to stand, try to stay in the shower. And everyone's outside so excited about the baby, but not the woman who just just birthed him. And so I immediately felt like something has changed. And not necessarily like I needed the spotlight on me, not because of that, but because I would think if we want this child to be as happy as he can possibly be even, that the person who's taking care of him the most and whose body did all this work for him to arrive that we should still probably see if she needs us or still be right next to her as she's now learning her new body or figuring out how she's going to recover so, so, so I don't even push myself too far. But nobody cared. And so it's something that I see play out in motherhood where mothers are thanked for putting their needs behind everyone else's or for pretending they don't have needs at all. And I almost felt this weird sense of like, oh, is this motherhood? Should I be proud that I've now gone to the shower on my own and nobody cared and I didn't demand attention and I didn't ask to be in the spotlight? Is that that badge of honor I should be wearing? And I immediately said, no, absolutely not. That's not going to be me. I'm going to talk about this because that should not have happened. And while I think some of my family members felt a little upset that I said this very publicly, like you all were the, you're the people I'm talking about. I can also tell you is a very different experience with my second because everyone was aware of what I was expecting in terms of you are still going to support me. You're still going to honor me. Yes, we can also celebrate the birth of this wonderful being, but let's not forget this is not possible without me. And they adjusted. So yes, they were a little upset about it, but it made a difference. <laughs> so good for you. Like you set a boundary. And you know what's funny is before I had Milo, he's three now, I assumed that I would be the person that like wanted visitors and everybody around. And then after I had him, I quickly realized like, oh no, I don't want anybody around. Like I just want to be with my family and have my mom with me. And like, I didn't want people in the house at all for like a few weeks. And I was, you know, lucky in that I'm super confident. I had no problem setting that boundary, but so many women after giving birth are just, they are not listened to, nobody respects their boundaries. And I talk a lot about like the postpartum period is not respected at all in our society. I'm in Canada, but I imagine it's the same in the US. It's just all about the baby. People feel entitled that they can come over and visit the baby, even if the mother doesn't want to. And like you were saying, a lot of moms kind of think like, oh, is this this is what it just must be to be a mom. But it's like, no, like I want to shout it from the rooftops, like set boundaries, like you matter, your needs matter. Like, what are your thoughts about why that's the way our society is? Whereas you were saying in Sweden, your mom had a completely different experience, which is so cool that she got to experience having kids like in the US and then in Sweden. So like, why? Why is it like this? 
I mean, I think even before I even get to the why, I think an example that's really tangible for a lot of moms, if they don't already see, you know, in that first moment that we're talking about as quickly as we did, when you're nursing, for instance, in your first couple of weeks, anyone who's nursed, it's not something that you immediately are able to do and that you can like easily, you know, cover yourself and like hold, like it's, that's not what it is at the very beginning. And I don't ever cover. I don't think I need to put in that effort, but like, I don't judge anybody who wants to. It should be our choice. However, when people are coming over to your house in the immediate immediacy of you giving birth and then maybe expect you to like go to another room to nurse your child, this is what we're talking about right here. It's like, why should I have to inconvenience myself further when I'm actually supposed to be recovering right now? And if you're going to come and see me, it should be to help me, support me. Hopefully you're going to do some dishes or cook me a meal. Otherwise, I'm not really sure. (laughs) Or a friend who's just going to let me sit there and cry or laugh with you and talk it out. Or you're going to hold the baby for a second if I allow you to do that. But beyond that, anyone who's just coming to do other things, this is the conversation. This is the problem. That's not what that mom needs in that moment. And that newborn is not going to remember it. So don't pretend you're doing it for the the newborn child. (laughs) But in terms of the why, it goes back so many layers back. And I think a lot of women, a lot of mothers are not aware that what we're feeling is the result of centuries of oppression and this system of patriarchy that says that what a woman needs or what a woman wants is secondary to what everybody else around her wants. And so Motherhood is kind of this like ultimate expression of the feminine. And so we often think that we can rob the power from that by making it seem like something that is secondary, something that is weaker. It's so hard to summarize this because I want to, you know, explain all the theory and I want to explain all the times where it's been written in law that women should be treated as less than and that mothers and this power that they hold is seen as a weakness or seen as something to be controlled or seen as something that should only exist in the domestic sphere or something that you can't talk about openly or something that shouldn't be visible. So going back in my long answer, this circle of coming back to nursing When people say, I don't want to see that, it's more I don't want to see the power of this woman's body. Because I've been told my whole life something opposite, that this is something to be hidden, that even a woman and a young girl's period is something that they should be ashamed of. And so it's it's a it's just another layer of that. It's just another symptom of a system that's been built to keep women in a state where they don't have access to the same resources or the same support or the same even recognition as a beginning point of let's see this, let's put attention on her, let's say that she's worthy of our energy as well. So it's not just a one-off, but something that's, that's very large and very strategic. And that's why it's critical that we speak up against it. It's not only for ourselves and in our own personal experience. It's so that we can really start shifting a cultural mindset around women and mothers. My husband and I both turn the big four zero next year, and we have been thinking a lot about our long-term health. 
We want to get smarter about our health, make better choices, but also not feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction. There is so much information out there and it can be hard to figure out what applies to you, what is right, and what is wrong. Well, let me introduce you to the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. Don't just take my word for it. Naomi's Apple Review says, Zoe Science and Nutrition is super easy to consume even if you don't understand the science. With loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting cutting-edge science. You can't go wrong with a weekly podcast where world-leading scientists explain how their own research could improve your health. If you're ready to join millions of others like Naomi transforming their health, then search for Zoe Science and Nutrition wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Little Spoon. If you're like me, then the bane of your existence is thinking about what to feed your children, prepping food, going to the grocery store, all of the above. Who has the time? We are all so busy, and it's important to incorporate things into our life that keep our life as simple and convenient as possible. Little Spoon is one way to do just that. They deliver fresh, healthy meals and snacks straight to your door that your kid will love at every eating stage they are in. The baby blends are fresh, organic baby food from single ingredients to multi-textured purees to take the stress out of starting solids. They partner with Clean Label Project to test their blends for 400 plus contaminants, including heavy metals, so you know you're getting good stuff. The Biteables are finger food meals that are cut to size to promote easy self-feeding, and they are healthy, balanced, and free of artificial junk. The Little Spoon Plates are toddler and big kid meals that are free of junk and they taste amazing. Even the pickiest eaters will love them. Think hidden veggie mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and adventurous eats like potstickers, gnocchi, and more. They also offer really fun things like puffs, they have smoothies, lunchers, and snacks. You quite literally never have to think about food again. It's just easy peasy. And did I mention this all comes right to your door? It is so flexible, so easy, and everything stores right in the fridge and freezer. The price is right. The quality is unmatched. You are going to love it and your kids are going to love it. It is just a huge win for your family. Simplify your kids' mealtime with 30% off your first order. Go to littlespoon.com slash momroom and enter our code momroom at checkout to get 30% off your first Little Spoon order. Can you speak a little bit about the maternal health crisis, especially when it comes to Black women? I remember... I don't know how long ago it was that Serena Williams spoke about her experience. And I remember listening to some podcasts and reading articles and my mind was blown. And I I think it was like black women are four to five times more likely to die giving birth. And like the mortality rate in the US is higher than so many other countries. And I'm Canadian, but when you look at the US, It's like they're this big country. They have all this money. They're so like, you know, advanced. And it's just wild to think that these are the statistics. So can you speak a little bit about that? And then also the history of maybe why this is happening. I like to say often that, I don't like to say it, but I have to say it, that 
The maternal health crisis in the U.S. is a maternal health crisis for for all women of all backgrounds, of all races. Like you said, there's a higher mortality crisis in the U.S., period, for mothers. And as we know, these things are always worsened for groups who have been put at a disadvantage, who have been excluded, who have been marginalized. And so we see it even more for Black women, for Latinx women as well, but especially Black women. But I think that that number keeps other women from thinking that there is an issue happening for them as well. They also shouldn't be facing the numbers that they're facing. So I'm going to say that first, that everybody needs to be concerned about the maternal crisis in the U.S. And even if it wasn't affecting them, they should be concerned. But if you're the kind of person who thinks, oh, well, that's that group and not mine, it's actually all of us. And there's something going incredibly wrong in the American health system around the way that we see mothers and we don't respect, again, the voices of women. So when women say something's wrong and we don't pay attention to them, that's further magnified for black women. It comes back to a lot of different things, but one of them is bias and thinking that black women can somehow handle more pain than other people. There's this notion that black women are stronger, that they don't need as much intervention, or that they're making something up. They're trying to get something out of the system when they're saying something's going wrong, I need help. So that's a part of it. There's also a part of it where there's a lot of money behind birthing in the United States. And so getting women into hospitals, getting them to fear what their bodies can do, saying you don't know how to do this, but I do as a, as a doctor. I mean, quite often this actually comes back to white male doctors specifically, the first to perfect a lot of these interventions. And when they are necessary, 100%, I'm grateful that they are there. But unfortunately, if we go back and look at births in the United States, there are so many unnecessary interventions, whether that's inductions taking place, whether that's an epidural or a C-section that didn't necessarily need to happen. And a lot of women just were feeling afraid, afraid of the pain, afraid of what might happen. Um, And that also is a strategy because C-sections cost more money. (laughs) Epidurals cost more money. Pitocin costs more money. So we can't think of it as it being separate of that. It's, It's again, part of a larger strategy to tell a woman, you don't know what you're doing your body doesn't know what it's doing. And historically, I, a white male, can tell you better about birth, something that I'm never going to be able to do. I can tell you how to do this better. That's all part of removing that power from that woman and saying, give it to me. I know what to do. You do not. And we can see that very specifically with black women, where for so long it was illegal for us to even deliver in hospitals. We weren't allowed into hospitals. And so the granny midwife tradition is a long respected one, but this changes when Medicaid is introduced and there's now money involved in getting black women to deliver in hospitals and getting them to let go of a tradition saying, hey, you actually need all of these interventions. And Medicaid even pays more for C-sections than for a vaginal delivery. So there's a lot that people just are completely unaware that we're part of a larger strategy. And I just want more women to be aware so that at least they can make the decision with that extra information and not only the information of, 
oh, this is going to be hard. It's going to be scary. It's going to be painful. Leave it to me versus find you have it in you. Your body 90% of the time does know what it's doing. And if it doesn't, there will be an intervention there to help you. Whenever money is involved in healthcare, you know, it makes you wonder because I'm sure a lot of these interventions also make the delivery happen faster. And then you have an open bed a lot sooner. And like in Canada, we don't have like we have what is it called? Universal healthcare. Like it's not like a paid for thing. But at the same time, we still are under the pressure of, you know, wanting people in and out as quickly as possible. I think about that all the time. Like when people have C-sections, like, did they really need that? Like, you know, my husband's a physician. He's not an OBGYN, but I always feel funny because I talk about healthcare a lot and like the healthcare (laughs) system and like I talk a lot of shit (laughs) and I'm like, does he hear me? But also at the same time, like I have kind of like a behind the scenes view of how the healthcare system works because he's my husband and I, you know, I hear about his work a lot. It's interesting. And do you think we are on the path of things changing? I know you said you had a doula. I had a doula as well. She wasn't there at the delivery, but she, you know, going to meetings with her and like just being educated about what was going to happen, like to my body, all of my options once I was in the hospital, you know, like they're going to come to you with this, like, here's what this is, like, here's the options that you have, like, whereas you were saying when you're not knowledgeable, then you kind of have this fear and you're more likely to just do what people are telling you to. I almost wish everyone was given a doula because it's like someone to advocate for you because a lot of people's support person is not going to know anything either once they're there. And so you want someone who can advocate for you. Well, especially if that, especially if your support person is a man, like it's not, they have no idea. And they're even more afraid because they're not capable of doing it. So they're more likely to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get the thing. <laughs> Cause you don't know what you're talking about. Remember it's all part of the system of women don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's one of many policy interventions that, if I could, you know, make a wish and that happen would be that doulas and midwives would be covered by insurance and that it wouldn't be something that's only available to those who are privileged enough to pay for it. Because I was so aware of what was happening in the U.S. and the history behind this and this need to control me and the biases that I was going to face. And I knew, I mean, it's almost like an experiment that I do when I go in because I study this and I go in to see my, you know, OB or what they're going to tell me. And it's, it's fascinating how many issues come up when you're aware, even for instance, cervix checks, like they don't necessarily have to happen, but a lot of women think that they do. And so they, you know, if your doctor says, do you want me to check your cervix? And you're like, oh, you should, oh, should you? I don't know. And it's like this painful thing that Women don't have to experience, but we don't know. So my biggest thing is I don't want any mom to ever feel like she made the wrong decision in how she brought her child into the world. I think it's magical. However, we do it. It's it's the most incredible thing. C-section, epidural, vaginal, unmedicated, whatever. I just want more women to be aware of what it's all connected to, what their options are, what they're going to tell you and why they're going to tell you that. For instance, if you 
have a monitor on you and they're monitoring your baby's heart. It's actually really normal for a baby to experience distress while they're in the birthing process. They're working really hard to get out Mm -hmm. of there too. But if you hear as a woman and you're so vulnerable and especially if it's your first time giving birth and someone's telling you, oh, we've lost, we can't hear the baby. And then you're like, what? What happened? You're going to start freaking out versus just having more knowledge before you go in there. And a doula is such an incredible way to gain that. So I wish it was something that was covered. I worked with three incredible doulas the first time with my son. I had a beautiful delivery because it's what I envisioned for myself. It's what I wanted. And they reminded me from my very first meeting that I was in charge of the show. I went in saying, I'm so scared. I'm not going to be able to control anything. That's why I want to work with you all. And they said, we we respect that fear. You know, we hear you, but you're wrong. Actually, you are in control. You are in charge. And we are here to hear you and hear what you're telling us, even the signals you're giving us when we need to adjust or what strategies we can use. And can we get you into the shower? And can we get you on a exercise ball. There are so many options for you. So they just allowed me to say, okay, I I am an agent in this. I'm not just something that's happening to me. I'm a part of this. Uh, My child is a part of this. We're working together. My support person, my partner is a part of this. It's not for him to sit back and like pat me on the back and be like, good job. (laughs) Like he can do work with me. Obviously it's not going to be a fraction of what I'm doing, but There is a role for all of us to play. So that was really beautiful. And then when moving to, we came and moved to LA when I was pregnant with my second. So there was actually even more access to doulas and midwives of color that I didn't have when we were in Stockton. And I said, okay, I want to do the home birth that I had envisioned with my first. And my midwife was incredible to work with. She was brilliant. She was so calm and peaceful about everything. She, I could get her on the phone right away. If I had any question, I could just text her. That's not something we can do in hospitals. Nurses don't have time for that. You know, doctors don't have time for that. But a midwife and a doula, they're here to be with you and to pay attention to your unique needs, your unique case. They know you well. They know you personally. They become a part of your family. It was the most beautiful experience to have my son or my daughter at home, especially through COVID, to be outside of a hospital and to be at home and not be separate from my firstborn. But had I not been studying all of this, I wouldn't have known. I'm I'm a big fan of medicine. I'm big on vaccines. I'm big on like when you need it, I'm so grateful for it. But pregnancy is not a disease. Pregnancy is not a condition. Like it's not like a we don't, it's sort of, it's like the most comparable thing to it is like puberty. Like we, we're going to go through it. You don't like rush it. People go through it differently. We're not like, oh no, you haven't gotten your period yet. Okay, let's induce it. Like that's not yeah. how <laughs> it works. <laughs> so I just want more people to see it differently. That's a long answer. But yes, doulas and midwives are amazing. So in the U.S., midwives and doulas are not covered by insurance? No, midwives and doulas are not. There are some hospitals where you can work with a midwife who works at the hospital with you and you deliver with that like hospital midwife. So that is great, but it's still connected to this larger system of, it's not very personal. It's not very, I like know you one-on-one and not, not to say that I don't have great OBs that I've worked with. They've been amazing, but the way their schedule is set up, it's not their fault. They only have these like 20 minutes to see me 
You have to get in and out. We got quick questions, you know. This actually also happened a lot where when I would see my OB, they would, we'd have a very quick conversation. And then in the notes, they'd say that they'd covered so many things with me that we'd never actually covered. But in order for billing to work, et cetera, it's being said that I received, you know, let's say um, breastfeeding consulting. And I didn't. I had a very fast conversation. So those are things that I would say even like midwives within hospitals, it's very different than working with somebody who's separate of that, but it's expensive. I mean, it's like thousands of dollars to work with a doula or a midwife. Hmm. I know where I am, you can either do a midwife or you can do OB and both will be covered now, which is nice. And the midwife can actually go into the hospital and deliver your baby. That's nice. That's one thing we got going for us here. <laughs> yeah, I do think there are hospitals that offer that in the U.S. So I would have to look into it more before I said that that's definitely not a thing in the U.S., but I'm not sure. And then, of course, we have the shortage of midwives and doulas of color, which is another issue that, for instance, in the U.K., we know that it's also still very dangerous for black women and the numbers are still a lot higher for black women who die in childbirth, even though there is you know, universal health care, there is access to midwives. So that one has more to do with the biases that if you're not working with other women of color, you still are assuming, oh, you know, this black woman is maybe she can handle it more. Or even, you know, there's a lot of people will say, actually, a lot of it is that there's a lot of health concerns in black communities that contribute to to labor and contribute to these complications like preeclampsia or high blood pressure, et cetera. And while that's true, that's also a result of a system of racism. It, it comes back to this discrimination and other levels of healthcare biases that aren't necessarily directly related to maternal health. So whew, it's a lot, but there's a great book I can recommend on this. It's called Birthing Justice. It's an anthology where women of color are writing about how this all is connected to these larger systems that I keep referencing. I'm going to put the link to that in the episode notes. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode of The Mom Room and providing me with samples. You know how a lot of people can't leave the house without a water bottle? It's like their emotional support water bottle. I am the exact same way with facial tissues. And that is because I have such bad allergies, specifically in my sinuses, to the point where I know I'm going to have to blow my nose multiple times in a day, and I cannot be out in public without my emotional support facial tissues. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Now I know if I have a big event, maybe I'm going to a concert, going out for dinner, I don't want to be blowing my nose every two seconds. It's very unbecoming. And so I will take Claritin D and enjoy my evening. 
Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter or ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. This episode is brought to you by Lola V. Lola V is an award-winning hair care line by none other than Jennifer Aniston. They offer clean, plant-powered products for every hair type and texture. I just did my whole hair care routine with all the products the other night, and I am obsessed. Along with incredible shampoo and conditioner, they have an intensive repair treatment that you can use once a week. They also have a lightweight hair oil. There's a leave-in treatment, and there's also a glossing detangling which I need because lately I want to do my hair in like a slicked back look, but my hair is too frizzy. Get 15% off Lola V with the code MOMROOM at www.lolav.com slash MOMROOM and Lola V is L-O-L-A-V-I-E. I want to talk about your book. I was listening to you on another podcast and it was like you were writing your PhD dissertation and writing this book and you were pregnant. And I was like, what? Like, (laughs) I, I, so I have a PhD in psychology and I finished days before the pandemic started. So technically I was pregnant during my PhD as well. But I did a 12-month maternity leave from the program after having Milo. So did you give birth while you were doing your PhD? I did, yes. And then I had like a six-month leave. When you're in school, you have a leave? Yeah, well, because I did my PhD in the UK. Oh, oh. So it's not the same for American PhD students. As far as I know, I don't think there is as much of like, I don't think they get a paid leave. Right. Okay. But I'm not positive on that either. <laughs> I feel like okay. People in your comments are going to be like, she doesn't know. She was, she was. <laughs> <laughs> so how does one write a dissertation and a book at the same time? However, I love that you were like, whatever my dissertation is, I'm going to write a book about that because <laughs> a dissertation is literally like a book Uh, and it's so much work. So good for you for getting this book out. Um, But yeah, what was that process like? And also, where did your idea come from to write this book, which was also, I think, basically what your dissertation was about? Yeah, yeah, very similar. So even in undergrad, I knew I wanted to get a PhD, but not because I wanted to become a professor immediately, like maybe later, but because I wanted to kind of take the tools that I could learn in the ivory tower, as we call, you know, the academia, take those and make them approachable, accessible, interesting, because in the U.S. and all over the world, but very especially in the U.S., we need more tools that help people understand race gender, all these things that I've been talking about, that we've been talking about in ways that are approachable and they don't necessarily have to be comfortable. It's not always going to be, you know, like happy and we can talk about this with smiles on our faces, but that people can say, I can be at this table. I can talk about this. I can be welcomed in this conversation. And I think especially with race and gender studies and theory, 
it wasn't supposed to just live in the academy in the way that a lot of academics have kind of kept it there. These are conversations that should happen long before and even for younger students as well. So I knew when I started my PhD that I wanted it to be my first book and I wanted it to be a trade book, that it wasn't going to be published by an academic press. I wanted it to be accessible and something that a lot of people would read, hopefully. That was my goal. And so I was very strategic even in thinking about who I might write about, etc. Kind of narrowing it down. I wanted to do something that was similar to Hidden Figures. I was very inspired by Margot Lee Shutterly's work and the film that was then based off of her book and making sure that we were correcting our understanding of American history and making sure representation was accurate and that the right people (laughs) were being celebrated. So I knew it was going to be something to that in that vein. I knew it was going to be something around moms. And then I said, okay, what's the, what's the thing that can hook the most readers? I'm going to play on the patriarchy. I know if this book has MLK Jr., Malcolm X, James Baldwin, more people are going to be like, huh, okay, (laughs) sure. Because new books are written about those three every single year. I don't even know. It's such confidence for people who keep writing about them because I'm like, what else is there to say? (laughs) But cool. So I said, all right, I'm going to use them as my hook and then people will still walk away knowing three Black women's names. And I narrowed it down also because the three moms were all born within six years of each other. Their famous sons were born within five years of each other. And so surprisingly, though, I actually sold the book before I finished my PhD. So this was a beautiful problem, but one that I was not expecting. I thought I was going to write the dissertation and then switch it to a kind of accessible, more interesting narrative with more emotion, etc. But I was working with my agent already on a novel that I've been writing for several years that I haven't yet finished, but I'm going to get there eventually. And she said, okay, is there anything else you're working on? You know, I love your writing. I want to support you. And I thought, oh, well, you know, I'm doing this as my dissertation. And she said, okay, yeah, that's the one. (laughs) People are going to want to read that. And so I said, all right, cool. I talked to my advisor, my PhD advisor, to see if that was something I could do. Could I approach trying to get this book out there before I finish? She said, yes, they're going to be completely different documents. Yes, they can be about the same women, but they're going to be very different from each other. So the way I approached it, I was doing my research. It was my researcher when I was pregnant, when I found out I was expecting my son. And I research and write at the same time. I'm not the kind of researcher who like does research for a year and then writes for a year. I'm like already forming the story in my head. I'm getting information and putting it down and kind of was organizing it in these 10 year periods of their life and kind of already thinking about how their stories might intersect and how they diverted from each other. So I wrote it all and then sent the same document actually to my advisor that I sent to my editor for the book. And then I went on my six month leave. (laughs) So my goal was like, you're all going to have a draft and I'm not going to talk to you for six months. Give me edits that you want. I'll come back to that, which is, there's a side note to that. It's, it's also really difficult for your brain to shift back into like mom brain is so brilliant. I hate that people talk about it as if it's like a dumb brain. It's not, it's, it's brilliant what mom brain can do. It's just a different brain than I'm sitting here writing and reading documents. So that also took me a little bit, I think, to get back into shape 
in that sense. But that's when the two documents changed and were completely took on their own lives. So, of course, my editor was like, let's pull out the emotion. Let's get the narrative. Let's get the feelings in there. Add in your own personal story. That's allowed here. And that's when my advisor says, all right, let's really tease out the theory. What are you adding to the sociological discourse of motherhood and What's your kind of concept that you might be coining? So they're they're very, very different from each other. But that was my strategy. And then I went on, started the book tour, actually, before I defended my, my dissertation. Oh, my God, that's awesome. I love that. I... I felt so good for my PhD because I had published all of my research papers before I defended. Oh, and wow. so okay. the committee was kind of like... Well, shit, we can't really. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, this is perfect. (laughs) Yeah. So I felt super comfortable. But here you are. You're like, I'm on a book tour for this, but go ahead, ask me questions. I love it. Well, it's actually funny. Like the day before I started the, like, because it was virtual. So I say, in quotes, started the book tour. I did defend, I did my initial Viva. And I was really like, I mean, my book's about to come out. It's on all these, like, most anticipated lists. Like, I got this, you know, and I actually think it in a way it didn't hurt me, but I think my committee kind of wanted to like be like, well, yeah, it might be ready for this audience, but you know, so they actually were like, you have some corrections. And I, (laughs) I said to my husband, I was like, oh, come on, this is so annoying, but fine. So then I couldn't do my, I couldn't submit my corrections until like six months later because I was like, well, y'all, I love you, but I'm going on my book tour. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I love it. So for people who are listening, what is the book about and why was it so important to tell the story of these three women? Yeah, the book is about Alberta King, Louise Little, and Bernice Baldwin, the mothers of MLK Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin. And I think we've touched on a lot of what I thought, thought, thought was important, but just to give a little extra information, in these three cases, it was it is so, so clear. And I mean, it should be probably in most mother-child relationships, but especially with these three that these children could not have done anything that they did even beyond being birthed without the influence of their mothers and their mother's passions and talents long before they became mothers. So just to give a little teaser, Alberta King, MLK Jr.'s mother, she was raised by the leaders of Ebenezer Baptist Church. She believes in marches and boycotts and grassroots organizing. She's a member of the NAACP. She's this activist. She's always connecting her faith to social justice. And all the things that we revere MLK Jr. for, he directly inherits from his mother. And even her husband in his autobiography says he could not have been who he was without her. And yes, any good partner will say that about their partner. But in their case, When he met her, she was already college educated. She had a teaching certificate. This is not something we can take for granted in the early 1900s for a black woman to have achieved so much. But he didn't have the same access to opportunities. He was considered illiterate when they met each other. And to his luck, she actually does love him back, even though she's really way out of his league. I'm putting this in very modern terms. But she helps him get into college. She tutors him through his college education. So it's it's a complete 
mistelling of the story to say that MLK Jr. inherits the church and inherits his power of oration and writing from his father. That's not true. This was already Alberta King's church. When she married her husband, he moved in with her and her family. And this is a long line of activism that her and his, I would say, MLK Jr.'s maternal lineage has perfected and passes on to him. Louise Little, who's ML, or Malcolm X's mother, she is this radical activist, even from a young age. She believes in Black independence, Black pride by any means necessary. She's very anti-white assimilation, white supremacy. So when she's 17, she, le- she leaves Grenada to go to Montreal, Canada. Shout out to Canada. <laughs> and she joins the Marcus Garvey movement. If you don't know much about Marcus Garvey, there are very direct connections between what he saw as the path to black freedom and what the Nation of Islam also believes. Again, anti-white assimilation, all about black self-sufficiency, black pride, black love. This is Louis Little, again, long before Malcolm X is born. And then we think about Burtis Baldwin, James Baldwin's mother. Her life was influenced by the loss of her mother at a very young age, maybe even in childbirth. And she takes this moment of sadness and really becomes someone who's focused on how you heal and how you find love and how you find light and how you can confront the darkness, confront the pain in order to find something really beautiful. And she's a writer. So everyone who knew her, she they talk about how beautifully she could use her words to help you change your perspective on the world, and very specifically, Jim Crow, and how change is possible if we can love, and if we can find the truth and kind of fight that hatred together. So when James Baldwin later at one point says that he's a witness to the power of light, and he does this through his writing— It's not just something that he's beautifully come up with. He's directly quoting his mother. So those are just teasers. There's a lot more in the book, but hopefully you can see just from that the importance of knowing these women's stories and not only what it means for celebrating them as individuals, but what their lives symbolize for Black motherhood, for motherhood more generally, and for the representation of women. It's unbelievable that it's 2022 and your book like this is the first time that a lot of people are going to be reading about their stories it's so sad it's shocking a lot of people have said you know this is such a creative idea of yours how did you come up with it and I'm like this is not creative yeah (laughs) I'm sure like I'm not creative (laughs) yeah exactly um mom exists whoa yeah I know but isn't that wild that we're like wow I say it all the time this is like my way of really like driving home for people that every year we celebrate MLK Day it's around his birthday January 15th but no one has stopped to consider who else was there with him the day he was born the woman who birthed mm-hmm. him. <laughs> mm-hmm. Perhaps. Yep. MLK oh Jr. got a mom. It's crazy. Okay, I'm going to put a link in the episode notes for your book. I just started my book club back up. And so this is 100% going to be a pick. I just, I sent my husband a screenshot. I'm like, order this for me right now. Because I was reading, I'm like being Canadian, I don't know much about either of those men's like true like stories like what they did like obviously I have an idea but I'm like 
I'm going to start with their mothers. And that's what, like, that's what I'm going to start with. And then I'll check them out. (laughs) That's my goal. I hope that like, even in the future books that are written about them and all the talks we gave that more and more people are like, oh, actually, Anna Anna told us that it started with the moms. So that's, thank you for choosing it. (laughs) Yeah, no, for sure. Also, okay, as I was researching you, I started then researching your husband and I was like, wow. (laughs) Like, you guys are so impressive. So he wrote a book as well. He did. The Deeper the Roots. It's a Tupac quote. Okay. Yeah. And it's his memoir. Yeah, I read the, like, the information about it. And I was like, oh, my God, now I got to read this book, too. Like, (laughs) it's amazing. It's really beautiful. And honestly, in the same vein of talking about celebrating Black women and Black mothers, he is one of the first or the first person who will say it was his mom, his grandma, his aunt, and now his wife who have influenced him. He's all about you know, black women are the ones who have guided me and have led me and how I came up with innovative ideas. So the reason he wrote a memoir at such a young age, he's only 31. <laughs> um, is, I'm, like, I'm like, he's not a lot older than me. I don't know. It doesn't matter. <laughs> but that he um, was the mayor of Stockton, California. And in American history was the youngest mayor of a major city ever. And so he was a city councilman when he was only 21. I was 19 when we were campaigning. We've been together for 10 years. So going through this like journey together has been amazing and really cool to see it come to to fruition and that you can also read about it in the book. Yeah, I'm excited. Well, to end, can you tell people where they can find you online? Oh, and do you have any other projects coming up that you're like thinking about or what are you working on now? Yeah, actually, just last week, I submitted a proposal for my next nonfiction. So I will keep you all posted if it all, (laughs) if it sells. Um, And then two children's books that I'm working on. So if y'all want to just stay up to date, you can go to my website. It's onamalikatubs.com and you can subscribe to the newsletter. I previously haven't sent anything, but I'm now going to get on (laughs) the newsletter game. Um, And you can also find my social media handles on there and you can watch my TED Talk that is also available. And hopefully um, you'll enjoy it and all of the future projects. I'm very excited. It's so cool to get that question because with your first book, you're, you say you're a writer and people are like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm working on a book. And people are like, sure you are. Whatever. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah that's nice. And then once the book's out there, people are legitimately interested in <laughs> what you're doing next. So I appreciate it so much. Yeah. The TED Talk was the first thing that I watched or like read or anything of you. And I was like, oh my God, like, I love this. So I'm going to put a link to your website and also to the TED Talk because actually I'm going to share it on Instagram too, because I love, I love just that topic like of motherhood. And that's really like what this podcast is about. Like everything I do on social media is like trying to get moms to be respected and like motherhood is so difficult and it's so important and so yeah I actually wanted to ask you about that when we were talking a little bit about how the the transition for me and how people feel kind of like I'm making something up by saying I was put as a second class citizen as soon as my son was born and how you've spoken about that and at times you get a lot of I would say hate Mm -hmm. for that Can you tell Mm -hmm. us a little bit more about kind of how you handle that and why you think it happens? 
So I'm very active on TikTok and Instagram and I talk a lot about my experiences and like things in motherhood that a lot of people don't necessarily talk about. And TikTok is where I get most of like the negative feedback because they're sent off to people who don't necessarily follow me. Whereas Instagram, it's mostly my followers who are seeing the content. But it always surprises me that like when I talk about being the default parent. So that's what I am. My husband's a physician. He has like a super busy career, also a a not flexible career. So I'm the one that's always, you know, picking up Milo if he's sick, staying home with Milo if he's sick and feeling like my husband's job will always come first. Like that's really difficult. And so I talk about things like that. And it's interesting to me that it's always women who like the odd time there's like a man who says something totally like, you know, out to lunch, which, okay. But (laughs) it's probably like a 13 year old in his basement, but (laughs) whatever. But it's always women who are the ones that want to not validate other moms feelings or, you know, just say, you know, it is really difficult. Like I feel for what you're going through. It's always women. And I'm like, isn't that interesting that we're all going through this? You know, most of them are moms and they're the ones leaving these comments. So yeah, I think about that a lot and I'm like, why is that? And I honestly think it's because we like lack empathy when we see another mom for whatever reason. And I think instead of looking at other moms and their situations with empathy, we just like want to evaluate what they're doing. It's like, I'm going to evaluate that and put it against what I do and my thoughts to try and like boost my self-esteem. But like at the end of the day, you cannot compare two moms situations. You can't like their support systems are different. Their mental health, you know, is going to be different. Physical health, the temperament of their kids, everything, their finances, you know, like in Canada, we have maternity leave in the U S you don't like you can't compare. And so oftentimes, you know, we just like lash out with these comments, like, well, at least your husband has a good job or, well, you're lucky you don't have this or, you know, I had it way worse. Like you only have one kid. Like I have five and it's like, oh my God, can I just, I know people call it the struggle Olympics. Exactly. And moms, I feel like we deal with that so much, like constant of like, well, this is the better way to do it than this. Even with the smallest things, you know, whether you co-sleep or you don't or whatever, versus like realizing that this is part of an internalized way in which we are also reproducing the patriarchy. We're telling each other, oh, stop complaining. Or maybe it's someone from another generation saying, we never talked about this. You know, we were... And and you're just saying, I I want us all to feel celebrated, seen, recognized in the many different ways in which we're mothering, the decisions we're making, but being really cognizant of something that's important to talk about, which is the default parenting. I was speaking to a friend about this just the other day where we have our own careers, our own passions, whether it's, you know, working within your home as a stay-at-home mom or outside of your home or working at home. There's so many different ways in which we're all working, but it does 
always, if not, well, okay, I'll say always, at least in my experience as well, it's going to fall back on me if, for instance, our baby gets sick or something happens or I have to take him somewhere or take our daughter somewhere. And I don't know, I'm grateful that you're another voice for this because the more of us that there are, <laughs> it seems like such a weird thing. <laughs> I totally, and what I do on TikTok is when I get these like comments, I'll often video reply them. And then people oh, are I like, why are you, people, yeah, people are like, why are you video replying? Like, don't give these people the time of day. And I'm like, I'm not video replying for me. I am so confident. Like, I think my husband and I are like the best parents. Like, it's not for me. It's for other moms out there who hear the same bullshit and don't know how to respond and start to feel bad. Well, I will speak up and explain why this comment is not okay. You know, so yeah, that's my... We and should have a day start... where you and I just reply to crazy people who say things <laughs> together. Oh my God, totally. Well, we could, so I don't know what month I'm going to have. Maybe I'll do it for the Mother's Day month. We could do like a, a live or something. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd love it. That would be so fun. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm sure we're going to keep in touch. I followed you on Instagram and now I'm obsessed with your family. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you so much. Thank you. Bye, everyone.